You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. If we had five people in this room right now and we had them take a look at me and then had them turn around and ask them what color is my tie, we would get all kinds of responses from people wanting to please us and say something. Eyewitness testimony is is just one facet of of all different types of testimony. And you're right, histories change uh, when people are talking and, and people have motivations. The rules of evidence allow you to look into the bias of witnesses and uh, some may have bias. Looking at the pattern of one's um, judgments and prejudices and also attractions is a way of kind of reading an x-ray of parts of your inner world on the outside screen. If I see the discrepancy between who I really am at the moment and how I'd like to be, that's uncomfortable. Now, that could either be an inspiration to just go back to work, or it could make me get angry at someone for depriving me. Or if I can make them look smaller, then the difference isn't so bad, and I can feel better. Or I can just lie to myself, rather than face that tension. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine. Apothecary by Design. Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage. Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. And Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 96, Viewpoint airing for the first time on Sunday, July 14th, 2013. Today's guests include Stephen Schwartz, Principal Attorney with Schwartz & Schwartz, and psychotherapist Dr. Stephen Aronson. As a physician, I've learned that viewpoint is everything and that everyone has a story to tell. Things are not always as they seem. We're never entirely sure that what we see is what is reality or what we hear is reality. So if we can have an open mind and be compassionate and listen to what we are told or explore more what we think is going on around us, we're certainly going to be better off in our own lives. And I think that we're also better off when dealing with other people that we coexist on this planet with. We hope you enjoy our conversations with Stephen Schwartz and also Dr. Stephen Aronson. Thank you for joining us today. Today I'm sitting with a man who is no stranger to the microphone. This is Stephen Schwartz of Schwartz & Schwartz, a local attorney who also happens to do broadcast work, actually, in the area of sports and um, is an empire and has so many different talents, but it's somebody that I've known for many years through my son, Campbell, who played sports with his son, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you kindly. Real pleasure to be here, Lisa. So we're going to talk about the, the lawyer thing, which is really important, and we're going to talk about some more serious subjects, but why is it that you like sports so much that you would dedicate your time to being a local announcer and an umpire for Little League Baseball? Well, um, 
I, I think it's how I grew up. You know, we grew up as huge Red Sox fans and uh, in Portland, which was uh, really troubling. Of course, my children think that the Red Sox are just always champions because, you know, especially my youngest, two championships within his 16 years. My father lived and, and died, you know, a whole life without ever seeing the Red Sox win a championship, which was uh, the case with most people in New England of that generation. Uh, but having three boys didn't hurt things. Uh, my wife, Susie, who's also an attorney, was a professional ballet dancer in New York City and had danced at the Joffrey School for several years. And, um, and that may be, in fact, where my kids get their athletic prowess, frankly. But, <clears throat> you know, having three boys, uh, things changed a little bit in terms of uh, our interests and scope, and it uh, kind of gravitated towards uh, sports and athletics. Um, as well as music for, for my kids. So I just think that uh, that was a natural extension. I started coaching Little League. They used to make us umpire uh, the coaches, and I liked it. So I kept it up, and that was my one uh, tie to baseball after my kids all went to the dark side and started playing lacrosse, which all three of them do. And then um, you know, I would go, we would go to all of their games anyway, and you know well what this is like, traveling to, to all of their games. And uh, um, in, at Portland High, they needed somebody to film the, uh, the games for the coaches and for TV3, WPPS TV3, which is Portland Public Schools, um, has a station that Time Warner <clears throat> gives them. And as a result of that, they broadcast the game. So I said, I'll, I'll do it. And then... You know, I actually saw another young man from Daring High School, a student, doing some games, and he was in front of the camera, and he was doing some announcing, and I said, you know, I think I can do that. So I started to announce games. We started uh, during the playoffs run when Portland High went to the state championship. They played in Falmouth versus Bangor, and I was really bitten by the bug. So since that time, I've been broadcasting uh, all sports, ones that I, where I have a dog in the fight when my kids are playing, and now I do other things, like I've done basketball playoffs, including the state championship two years ago for Deering High. Um, and I was also, I should say, among my uh, two majors in college, I was a broadcasting major. So I did the news uh, for a local station up there, and uh, I think it was just a, it's a natural progression, and I think it's really my midlife crisis. My midlife crisis is umpiring and broadcasting. Well, you know, it's not the worst midlife crisis to have, given all the possibilities, so I think that's all right. Fair. <laughs> it strikes me that no matter whether you're doing work as an umpire or work as a broadcaster or work as an attorney, part of what you need to do is be an observer of life. You have to be paying attention. In some cases, you need to be making judgments, but in other cases, you just need to be open to what's going on around you. Um, is this something that started when you were younger, this sort of keen observational sense and need? You know, <clears throat> perhaps. Uh, I must say that, you know, when I was growing up and I went to Deering High School, uh, Lincoln Junior and then Deering, um, I, you know, I don't believe that I was necessarily the best student, but there were certain classes in which I did quite well, and such as speech class, for example, uh, or make, you know, and making speeches or running for you know, office at the school and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's where it probably all started. And then I think that um, it was actually a piece of advice that I received much later on when I was a practicing lawyer and assistant DA in York County. And my boss was Mary Tuzignant, who was the DA. 
And I was trying my first felony trial. It was a jury wave trial. I was a prosecutor. And I was asking her a question while a witness was talking. And she just kind of looked at me and gave me this stern look and said, listen. And um, I'll, I'll really never forget that. It didn't matter what I needed to talk about or think about. She said, you must listen to what the witnesses are saying. You know, and we talked about that, and she was, and that, that was a great piece of advice for me. And the fact is that um, I think as an attorney or when you're on the field or anything else, you have to listen. Um, I have often commented that, uh, and I, I kind of feel this way in a trial, although things are much more intense when you have one, when you're in hearing and people's sometimes lives are at stake and their livelihoods and things like that. But <clears throat> on the baseball field especially, I feel like, you can tune everything out and just concentrate. You got to know the rules, and you get to watch parts of the game. If you're being, uh, if you're doing well as an umpire, you're missing a lot of the game. You might see a great home run, but if you're on the bases, you better be checking to make sure the person, the people are tagging the bases, so you don't get to see it go over the fence unless you're behind the plate. But so uh, there's that, and I and I do think that of course you have to perceive. All that is around you as an attorney, it's extremely important. So it's the ability to look at things um, more globally, but also more specifically, which comes in both as an attorney, as an umpire, as an announcer as well. Well, it's really very true. In fact, I'm preparing right now for a case that's likely to be going to trial on a criminal matter. And I uh, have really needed to spend some time uh, with the police report, reading every single word, really delving into the specifics of it instead of the generalities that, that we deal with when we go to court on discussion days and things like that, really getting into the minutiae of, um, of the facts of the case. And I have engaged my own investigator to, uh, to do an investigation, to go behind what the witnesses seem to be saying, uh, the police witnesses and other witnesses. And so you, you have to be very detail-oriented, and you do have to look at the specific, even though you have a broader view. As a teacher of physicians, I have sent medical students into a room and had them come back with a story that a patient has given. And I've gone into the room with them, and the story shifts slightly. So I've noticed that there's a big difference between what one person sees and hears and perceives and what another person sees and perceives. So how do you deal with that? as a part of the practice of law? Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that, that jurors are smarter than, than, they, than perhaps in years past and more educated. I think judges are as well. And I don't think that eyewitness testimony in and of itself uh, is, uh, I, I think it is sometimes enough to convict. And sometimes that's all there is um, in a criminal matter uh, or in an accident case or, or something like that. But but I think that people realize that eyewitness testimony is to be scrutinized, that, you know, if people, if we had five people in this room right now <clears throat> and we had them take a look at me and then had them turn around and ask them, what color is my tie? We would get all kinds of responses from people wanting to please us and say something from people that, uh, you know, that, that think it's a, it happens to be a gray and black tie, but two-tone black to, to who knows what to. I thought I saw maroon there. And, 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 I, and I think that people are, are 
you know, are wise to that and they're educated to that. They're educated to that because of, of things like the Innocence Project and because there is a concept in criminal law called actual innocence. Uh, it's a concept that we don't have to prove. Uh, and by any means, we have to raise reasonable doubt sufficient that at least one juror on a jury of 12 in state court, you know, will will be uh, will have that doubt. You know, I just think that uh, I, eyewitness testimony is is just one facet of of all different types of testimony. And you're right, histories change uh, when people are talking and, and people have motivations. And uh, my cousin Vinny was a great movie. And it really showed how eyewitness testimony really can be flawed. And the, the woman hadn't been wearing her glasses when she saw what she thought she saw. And her timing was off. So, And you have to do that. When you have an eyewitness, you have to look behind that. There are <clears throat> experts that you can engage if your clients have the resources that will be glad to talk to a jury about eyewitness testimony and its faults. People are educated to that, even by watching CSI. You know, I mean, they, they know that there needs to be, or they believe that there needs to be something more, that there should be a science to it. And, you know, and that's why if you have DNA evidence, for example, it's largely, not completely, but largely irrefutable. What kind of motivations could people have in seeing or hearing something and um, sort of changing it to what they believe it to be? Well, you know, it could be an unconscious motivation. It could be a, a, a desire to please. Uh, it may not be anything nefarious, um, <clears throat> but it depends. You, have, you are allowed, the rules of evidence allow you to look into the bias of witnesses, and uh, some may have bias. So what happens when you have a variety of different people and everybody says something slightly different and you don't have any DNA evidence and you're working on trying to either defend or convict somebody? How do you deal with that? Well, if you have a variety of people with a variety of different uh, uh, opinions or uh, views of the facts, then it seems to me that you likely have reasonable doubt. And so that would mean? would mean an acquittal in a criminal case. It would mean if you, if you have a duty to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, it could be difficult. If you're in a civil matter in the civil arena where the standards are either by a preponderance of the evidence or by clear and convincing evidence, which is a step in between that and uh, you know, reasonable doubt and uh, preponderance, then you may have some people that question, some jurors that question uh, or fact finders that question uh, what is right and whether or not it, the, the matter has been sufficiently proven. So is this the reason that we have tried, to the extent that we have tried, to allow people to have the benefit of the doubt, to give them, to read them their Miranda rights, to make it possible for them to try to prove their case because there is this possibility of reasonable doubt? I want to understand your question. Why do we have things like Miranda rights and things like that? Yeah. I mean, it, it, we have them because the United States Constitution demands it. And the United States Supreme Court has said this is what it means to have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. That That is not just a, <clears throat> a right that sits in the abstract. That's a real palpable right that all of us have. And um, people need to be told about that right is what the, that case stands for, Miranda versus Arizona stands for. And um, there are other rights, such as the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, which is, which is a part of that as well. You have the right to counsel. And that's a right that, that, uh, that people are told about usually fairly early on in the proceedings. And uh, does it mean that <clears throat> on occasion you're not going to get 
the information that you need as a, in law enforcement? Maybe. Does it mean that somebody who is not going to be badgered because they're thinking about it and they're saying, you know, I think I want to have a lawyer? That may be also true. However, the constitutional rights that we enjoy are not for the benefit of the government. They're for the benefit of individuals. And is that because in the past people weren't given the benefit of rights and were sometimes um, unjustly jailed? Unjustly jailed or, you know, I mean, the classic example is, you know, beaten with a rubber hose. Um, you know, you, you certainly hope you don't that that doesn't happen in this day and age, but it did happen. And I think that that was one of the wrongs that was uh, that the Supreme Court sought to correct. And furthermore, our founders, <clears throat> excuse me, sought to um, correct the injustices that they saw uh, with respect to the justice system in Britain. We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. My wife and I have three kids. The first one likes to spend her money. The second one likes to save it. And the third, well, the third is more like an investor. And when we smile and laugh and make light of the relationship that they each have with their money, it reinforces their behavior. So our question for you is this, what relationship with money did your parents reinforce? Do you and your partner reinforce those as well? If you want to learn more about the different kind of relationships you may have with money, go to www.shepherdfinancialmain.com. Knowing what has been reinforced will help you have a better relationship with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. It's interesting to me as somebody who has heard a lot of patient stories and has heard a lot of, um, I've heard, you know, if I'm a family doctor, so I'll bring a family in and the father will have one thing that they say and the mother will have one thing that she says and everybody has a different perception of the reality, but they also have different needs that, that they need to fulfill. Say it's a child that they think might be abusing drugs. It may be something that the father needs to have go a certain way because of something that's that has to do with him. I, I almost can understand what you're getting at. Um, <clears throat> we pride ourselves in my office, and it was something that my, my father did and, and I try to do. I've been doing this now going on my 28th year um, uh, in uh, representing the whole person. And what that means is 
And, and it, it is mostly in a criminal matter. It's not exclusively, though, because if we have a client who's been involved in a serious accident and needs medical treatment or bills paid, we help them through that, too. We don't just say, you know, you just work on getting better and we won't do anything for several years. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, and then we'll, we'll get a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That's not how that works. It's, you know, compensation based on injuries. But we try as best we can, uh, to marshal uh, the medical treatment and help with that if we can, and counsel. Because as our diploma says, we are attorneys and counselors at law. In a criminal matter, when somebody comes into my office, and especially the younger, the more uh, the younger they are, the more this applies. But it could be to anybody. You know, our goal is to try to help people to not recidivate, and um, not just to you know take the one case and 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 put it through the system unless that's what our client's desire is. And of course, when you represent young people, families come into the room, we'll excuse them at times when the attorney-client privilege needs to be intact. And um, people, and we don't want to lose that. But otherwise, if somebody wants their friend or family in the room to talk about the, the case generally or where we're going to head with it, <clears throat> then that's fine. What we tell our clients, especially our juvenile clients, and we actually have a written fee agreement that says this, that they sign, not they don't have capacity to contract, but they sign it, and the guarantor, whoever is paying our fee, signs it. And we have a paragraph that makes it very clear that regardless of who is paying the freight, that's not the person that calls the shots. Okay? With our advice, our clients make decisions, and we actually put in there, even if uh, the decision made by our client is in contravention to what the guarantor wants to happen. So, and I think that's an added comfort level. I can tell you that, um, and so we'll meet with the whole family. We'll come up with a game plan or wh whoever uh, our client wants in the room, the family wants in the room. And, uh, you know, and some will say, you know, well, we want these very strict bail conditions and I'll say, well, you know, I, I want to talk with you about that. I think we can do things and, and see if our client can is willing to do these voluntarily, counseling or evaluations and things. But I'd rather not make it subject to a bail condition because I'm representing, you know, your son in this case. And if your son violates the bail condition, your son's going to go to Long Creek or maybe to the county jail for a while. And <clears throat> that's problematic. So my job is to mitigate those damages as well as to see to it that, that somebody can be helped. So if that was the nature of your question in terms of involving family um, and that sort of thing, then, then that's what we try to do. I always tell my clients, you know, when you leave this room, you can pick up the phone and call me. And we can have a private conversation. And I, that, that has happened to me on more than one occasion. I'd have a client say, I know you're representing me, for example, for this um, theft case that I have. My parents don't know I have another theft case pending. Can you help me with that? I'll usually say yes, and but you know I won't be able to necessarily send mail to your house, and you know we'll have to talk about that. But of course I can help you with that, and uh, uh, so that's happened to me before. What type of legacy would you like to leave for your sons? I mean, obviously you still have many years of practice ahead of you, but you, I'm sure, are thinking about the legacy that your father left you. You have three sons, and what would you like them to know and to learn from you? 
Well, I, I do think that having a work ethic is important, to ha- having a, a strong work ethic. To um, I'm able to do things like broadcast and because I'll go to the office and maybe stay there till you know, 11 p.m. many nights or work from home or something like that. So I, I think that's important. You know, my kids, in my opinion, have much more varied interests than I did at their age. They have many more things at their fingertips, much more information, of course, at their fingertips than I ever had. Um, and I'm not sure that I can leave a legacy for my kids as much as learn from them. They're musicians. They are uh, decent athletes. They're decent students. And um, I think all at a much younger age uh, than there were good students and musicians than I was. I mean, I was in a band in law school and we played in a few venues, not very much, just for the fun of it. And uh, although my my friends who were musicians were really good, I was actually the singer and played a little guitar. Um, But you know, I, I think the legacy that I'd like to leave is the word perseverance. I remember in seventh grade, I got a, a like a two, and when four was the best, on perseverance. And my father sat me down and explained to me what perseverance means and how to, you know, keep going at something. And that was when my grades at that particular time were pretty good, but perseverance was an issue. And so uh, I think that would be a good legacy to leave, to persevere and uh, to, you know, to keep going for it. I appreciate your coming in and talking to us today. And I think there are many parallels between medicine and law. So it's been interesting for me to hear some of the things that you've dealt with with your clients and to think about how that um, those types of things have impacted me and, and how I've dealt with my patients. So really appreciate your coming in and talking about all of this with me. We've been talking to Stephen Schwartz of Schwartz & Schwartz here in Portland. Thank you kindly. It was a pleasure to be here. and the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. If we all saw things the same way, it strikes me that life would be less complicated. We would have all the same experiences, share the same perspectives and point of views, But at the same time, if we are all seeing the same things the same way, life would be pretty boring or mundane. I get more, way more out of life by discussing and sharing my viewpoint with my family and friends and trying to understand and learn from theirs. It's the same with relationships with clients. Of course, they see their businesses from one point of view and I from another. It's this partnership of shared perspectives that creates value. It lets me and my team focus on their business's financial health so they can spend more time visualizing their success. And that's just the way I see it. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. Boothmain.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. 
From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. There are lots of different ways to see the world, and there are people who spend their time helping us see the world in different ways. One of these people is Dr. Stephen Aronson, who is a psychotherapist with Mental Health Associates of Maine, which is right here in Portland. Dr. Aronson has a very eclectic background and training and has been in practice since 1971. So we're pretty privileged to have you here in the studio today to talk to us about the way that we see the world and the way that we can uh, enrich our experience in the world by trying to take a different view. Thank you for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Why did you decide to become a psychotherapist? Well, I think it came naturally when I was a uh, a young person at school, all my friends seemed comfortable talking to me. I didn't think about it at that time. But uh, from an early age, I was always interested in mystery, in uh, discovering what lay behind apparent reality. And the greatest mystery of all seemed to be consciousness. So I, I think without knowing it, it moved me in that direction. And out of a number of fields that I could have enjoyed, psychology seemed to give me the greatest flexibility. When you say that you had an interest in consciousness, was this something that developed while you were in school, or is this something that you had a sense of before you even began getting an education? No, what came first was uh, the attraction to mystery. It always seemed to me that there was more uh, to life than uh, the material world around me. There must be something that lay behind this and something that uh, was behind us. And so uh, I was attracted uh, to all the things young people are attracted to in that situation. Spent some time uh, looking at extrasensory perception and flying saucers and ghosts and lost civilizations. And uh, as I matured, uh, it, it moved towards the mystery of uh, how do we know anything? What are we doing here? What is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of existence? And um, there has to be something behind it. I could see that um, the tree was inherent in the seed. The entire pattern for the tree was in the seed. Just add water, dirt, and sunlight, and uh, it exfoliates out of that tiny little seed. So it seemed to me that uh, we exfoliate from somewhere into our life and into our bodies, and uh, we're motivated to do what we do and what we don't do by patterns within us, much of which we don't know anything about. So there, uh, I could see within myself that they were hidden patterns. So the question of who am I and uh, what is my purpose here, what kind of responsibility do I have for being alive, uh, gradually became more predominant. And as I become an adult, it could become more articulated that way. But looking back, I see a trail of breadcrumbs that uh, led me to this place. Did you start having these questions about who you were and what there was behind, um, what was behind, what was behind, what was behind? Did you start having these questions when you were younger? Yes, yes. I had these questions when I was a boy. And so how did that feel to be living in a world where a lot of people didn't really have those types of questions? The same way it feels now, <laughs> as most people don't. And are you any closer to the answers? Well, I am for myself. 
uh, or at least the, the um, have uh, sufficient uh, additional meaning to keep me um, happily on the search without being frustrated. You do have this very eclectic background, cognitive, behavioral, Jungian, transpersonal, and many other things I think that you have um, gotten an education in and an experience with. How has this all lent to a greater understanding within yourself of the bigger questions and the bigger answers, perhaps? Well, one analogy that comes to mind is the Hubble telescope. There's many different instruments in it. So if you look uh, at the uh, universe uh, just in terms of visible light, you get one picture. If you add infrared, you get another. Ultraviolet, you get another. Radio waves, you get another. And the composite begins to build and build and deepen and deepen. So you see more and more what is there that you couldn't see without the extra uh, instrumentation. So I think we're just like that. We need to learn to look at ourselves. When Socrates, or whoever his teacher was, advised to know thyself, I understand he didn't come up with that, but he's gotten the credit. How do you know yourself? Our senses direct us into the world outside of us, where life seems to be and all activity seems to be and where we're going to find fame, wealth, and happiness. And yet all our experiences of life are inside of us. They're in our mind, in our heart, in our sensations. So we seem to live outside, but we don't really. We live inside. And we have all these impressions and vibrations coming from the outside through our senses to tell us what the world is around us. But our hopes, our dreams, our expectations, our thoughts, our feelings, our aspirations, the uh, nasty parts of us, the saintly parts of us, that's all inside. That's all invisible. That's who we are. So to know yourself, you have to look at that. So you have to uh, our senses help us observe outside in the world, but to know yourself, you have to observe yourself. And there are no sense organs that we know about for seeing inside, and yet we do. We can see our thoughts, we can see our feelings, we see our contradictions, our hopes and our fears, if we're looking, if we know how to look. So all of these experiences help me develop uh, a variety of instruments, you might say, or attitudes or ways of paying attention inside my heart and my mind and my body, looking into my past and the interpretation I made of it, which has changed over the years. So you can change your past. It's just a story. Um, my aspirations and fears about the future, which are just fantasies and have no reality. And all of that um, has uh, helped me develop a multi-layered understanding of this pattern that I know is Steve inside this body I was born into. And so that gives me a, a very different sense of myself and, and my interaction with what seems to be the world around me, because it's really experienced only in the world within me. And each of us is a world unto ourselves. That sort of groundlessness is a challenging thing for, I believe, this culture, probably many cultures, where we are always striving to achieve some sort of solidity. We're always try, trying to find some sort of sense of security of who we are and identifying things about ourselves that can help us create more, well, I guess solidity is the word. Right. How do you work with this groundlessness in yourself and in people who come to see you in your practice? Well, paradoxically, it turns out not to feel groundless. It feels much more solid. And it's the outside world that seems much more impermanent. 
You know, you get a house, you lose a house. You get a car, you lose the car. You're young, then you're old. You have a job, then you don't have the job. People like you, then they don't like you. So what is permanent outside? And whatever I think outside is my interpretation of it. If I change my mind about something, it changes. Well, whatever it is didn't change, but my experience of it changed because I now I have a different attitude. So what the world out there is depends on what I think it is and feel it is. And if I come to see um, that uh, how I've come to those conclusions, um, maybe might have been accurate at one time, but isn't now, or might be modified by a different perspective. Or maybe it was because I got conditioned to think of certain things in a particular way, and now I don't. My world changes. But it changes because I've changed as a person in my heart and mind and my attitudes. From the ordinary outside viewpoint where everything is material and has a solidity for our senses, it seems groundless. But uh, from the inside, there's a, now a sense of solidity about myself that was never there before. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. When one enters a nature preserve or a secluded wooded area, we often think that we are the observer. Have you ever thought that upon entering such a space that we are in fact the observed? A thousand eyes are looking upon us. We can choose to see the natural world through hard eyes or soft eyes. Hard eyes make us separate from nature and also from other people. Soft eyes connect us to nature and to people around us. We welcome and observe the world around us with a sense of awe. Through this vision, it is as if we are seeing the world around us for the very first time. It is a fresh and new look. I think that in landscaping, in working with land and landscape, one of the things I really try to do is have a great deep reverence and respect for the natural world. And I try to bring that journey to my clients as we work together in designing and creating their landscape. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. At the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we believe we are helping to build a better world with the help of many. We like to bring to you people who are examples of those building a better world in the areas of wellness, health, and fitness. To talk to you today about one of these, fitness, is Jim Greiderichs, the president of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Here's Jim. Have you heard the buzz about the great new pain relief device at Black Bear Medical? The Laser Touch One is a new technological breakthrough that is effective in relieving muscle, tissue, and nerve pain 
93% of the time in most people. And the great part is that it is a two-minute treatment. Come into our Marginal Way showroom in Portland for your demonstration today and, and see why this is the buzz around town. I'm Jim Graterex, president of Black Bear Medical. Come on in and see our trained staff down at 275 Marginal Way and at www.blackbearmedical.com. One of the things that we know is a side effect of some of these medications, which we call psychotropic medications, is an interesting disruption of the dream state. And the dream state has been something that I know Jung and, and Freud and others have used for a while to actually examine our lives and bigger patterns and maybe even patterns of things that we didn't that we don't remember. So when we use medication that disrupts the dream state, are we somehow disrupting these clues that we could be using to figure out what's going on in our lives? Well, I once read a, um, a quote attributed to some rabbi who said, an unexamined dream is like an unopened letter from God. Because we don't pay much attention to dreams anyway. <laughs> most of us, most therapists do not use dream dream work. Uh, but the question is uh, really out of my field. I just know what, uh, what I've read about uh, levels of sleep and dreams, and that uh, insufficient REM sleep is not so good. So to the degree to which it's disrupted, that's probably not helpful. Uh, but most people don't pay attention to their dreams anyway, and if they have one once in a while, I wouldn't know how to interpret it. Well, indeed, we've become a sleepless nation, regardless of use of psychotropics. I mean, mm -hmm. we've become a nation that doesn't necessarily go to bed on time, doesn't have very good sleep throughout the night. Given this possibility that dreams are an unopened gift from God, if we're not sleeping well enough to dream, then we actually can't receive this gift. One would presume that would follow. I think in many ways, we one of the downsides of our technology is that uh, we can change... Uh, our natural rhythms. We don't have to go to sleep when the body wants to. What about some of these very basic human instincts that have somehow become um, mislabeled as bad or evil? On this show, we don't talk a lot about sex, but that's a very primal drive. That, that is something that we need for procreation. And yet it's become associated in most situations with something bad or evil. And it does become something that um, people want to not think about and not deal with because there's so much shame associated with it. Do you think that this is one of the reasons why people are perhaps not as connected to one another as they could be because of shame around things like this very basic human connection? That's an interesting idea. It certainly is another way that we um, artificially, through uh, imagination, uh, distort natural processes. How can we imagine the kind of creative energy inside of biological material that can create a human being? And we all carry this energy somehow within us. We don't know how it got there. We have no idea what it is because we don't know what we are, how we got here either. And under certain conditions, it uh, produces uh, another human being who, as I said, uh, <laughs> sort of uh, exfoliates <laughs> out of somewhere <laughs> uh, 
uh, into the uh, into the fetus and then out of the womb and into the world and begins to grow and grow and uh, just like a tree and then it does stuff and then after a while it gets old and shrinks and it and the body dies tremendous mystery and uh, it appears that um, humans have more pleasure from the sexual act purest than animals so when we're looking for uh, thing a stimulation to distract us you know that's a very powerful one plus at certain points in life it is an overpowering drive certainly for men and certainly for for women when uh, when they're in the childbearing age and if it hasn't been damaged emotionally or mentally um, by shame messages or guilt messages or sin messages or abuse emotional or physical or sexual then it has a natural flow or ought to in those cases where those other factors have come into play and unfortunately for large numbers of us they are there then um, it gets very confusing and as I said earlier reality is what I think it is so if I think that breathing is bad I'll feel bad about breathing if I think uh, that sexual energy is bad, then I'll feel bad about experiencing it. But good luck, you're not going to stop breathing, and you can't stop experiencing sexual energy. It's going to go someplace. And if it doesn't find an appropriate expression, it'll find an inappropriate expression. And if it doesn't find an external expression, then it'll make us sick inside. I shouldn't be having these feelings. Well, you've got a body. You're programmed to have these feelings at certain points. What are you going to do about it? So it's, it's very unfortunate that... Um, in uh, some cultures, and in this one in particular, we're so uh, hypocritical and dualistic about it. At the same time, the traditional messages are uh, restrain yourself. The popular culture is pouring out messages to the opposite, uh, hypersexualizing everything, and then surprised that we have um, difficulties with this. On the other hand, it's a very mysterious and amazing process, and it releases such potent emotional uh, energies and psychological energies that if uh, appropriately contained within a, an appropriate relationship, it uh, can produce a tremendous health and bonding. But it's often misused it, uh, for, for power. Um, it's exploited for, for various things because I guess like money, people want it, and so it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with money. It depends on how it's used, and sex is a natural process. It depends on how it's used. When these feelings get um, maybe have in a, have I don't want to say dysfunctional exactly, but perhaps there are some dysfunctional associations, sexual feelings. Can people tend to project things onto other people outside of themselves? because they're so uncomfortable with whatever it is they're feeling inside that they just want to get rid of it and they just want and, and they'll look at somebody outside of themselves and they'll start to assign some sort of blame or some sort of story to somebody else when it you know when it comes to sex. Well, I would say that's the essence of projection. Whether it's got to do with sex or anything else. We see all sorts of behaviors and attitudes around us all the time uh, that are different from our own but we don't personally get offended and emotionally charged up and judgmental want to do every, something about all of them 
There are only certain of them. And the pattern for me is different from the pattern for you. Well, how, why is that? Because it's a projection of the pattern within me. Now, why do certain people volunteer to be censors? Now, none of you should be in, look at that stuff. I'll take the burden on myself. Well, really? Well, thank you, but why are you doing that? Looking at the pattern of one's um, judgments and prejudices and also attractions is a way of kind of reading an x-ray of parts of your inner world on the outside screen. For instance, on the positive side, why do, why do we have certain heroes and not others? Why are your heroes different than mine? Because I see in that person or in that story something that resonates with me. I would like to be that. Why? Because I'm already programmed to be something like that. And I'm not that yet, but that's in the direction of what I'd like to be. Otherwise, why would I have that attraction? The same way if there's something particularly personally repellent to me, and uh, I'm really going to take a public stand. Now, I'm not talking about cruelty. You know, I'm just talking about behaviors that don't uh, harm people. Uh, but I don't like the way that person lives. I don't, I don't like their politics. I don't like Well, what's it to you? you know? All right, so you don't like it. In any given moment, uh, we, we have all sorts of preferences. We have intellectual preferences, emotional preferences, physical comfort preferences. No moment gives us gratification of all those preferences. Some come closer, and then we want to hold on to them, and then they go, and we think they've been stolen. Um, but usually, we never get everything we want in a given moment. But it's not the fact that we don't get our preferences that creates a loss of energy or an explosion. It's my objection to the fact that I'm not getting the moment that I expected. Now, what what's going on here? I expect it. I want it. There's something wrong. I'm not getting it. Return this moment to the sender, to the, you know, the factory. Give me another one. So, and again, maybe this comes back to the friction we were talking about earlier, that the inability to tolerate the delay of gratification, the inability to actually see that payment is necessary first if you want something of value that you can't just charge it I mean you can if it's a material thing but not if it has to do with uh, learning something or uh, changing your feelings or developing a relationship anything of a non-material nature you can't have it when you want it you've got to earn it you want to learn Chinese study for 10 years you want to learn medicine study for at least 7 years you want to learn anything you've really got to work at it if you want to become a more brave person or a more tolerant person, you've got to work at that. You have to see the places you're not brave and not tolerant and figure out what you're going to do about that. It takes time. But, uh, so this builds up friction. If I see the discrepancy between who I really am at the moment and how I'd like to be, that's uncomfortable. Now, that could either be an inspiration to just go back to work, or it could make me get angry at someone for depriving me or if I can make them look smaller, then the difference isn't so bad, and I can feel better, or I can just lie to myself rather than face that tension. What about the idea of a group projection, where an event happens and people choose to see it a certain way, and yet it's really not that way, it's some other way, and eventually we could, it could be proven that they were incorrect. Why would, why would an entire group of people see an event one way? 
I share a mindset. You know, groups are like uh, psychic organisms in a way. People can, who think the same way, well, just naturally will seek each other out, and mostly for benign reasons, sometimes creative reasons. Like attracts like, and we tend generally to gather with people who we feel are like us. So if uh, I have a particular kind of prejudice, I may gradually find myself surrounded by people who share that because people who don't make me uncomfortable. So I exclude them or they exclude me. So after a while, there's a whole group of us with a certain kind of mindset. And if you get um, someone in that group with charisma who uh, uh, can act as a leader, and most people are followers, then they will take their issue and uh, project it. And It's the same as I was talking about uh, earlier. The world is what I think it is. And if I believe X, Y, or Z about a certain person or group, I believe it. I can find others who believe the same thing. So the more uh, one has invested one's self-image in a particular belief or system or point of view, uh, to back down means a diminishment of myself because I think I'm my image. And then my image gets stuck to uh, where I live, my bank account, my car, my friends are, and um, my belief system, you know, which policies I, I go along with, which political party I belong to, and that becomes me. So anyone who doesn't agree with any of those things is directly attacking me. I'm not going to tolerate that. Nor will I admit I'm wrong. That would mean I'd have to change my image of myself. That's too painful. I've worked too long to build it up. In the situation of people who are, say, falsely accused of a crime, you don't necessarily have an entire group of people who are being led by somebody charismatic to convince the group that this crime has occurred or not occurred. Sometimes you have people with very disparate viewpoints, and they all somehow believe the same thing until eventually they are disproven. Mm -hmm. Why does that sort of thing happen if you don't have one unifying person or you don't have a group of people who all feel the same way? Well... That's happened to me because um, the evidence, as I was looking at it, looked persuasive. Maybe later I find out there was more evidence that wasn't presented, or there's another point of view I didn't see. Or maybe um, I realized that I've done something similar, even in secret. And if I'm honest with myself, I can see, you know, I'm not a bad person, but I see how I got into that pickle. So maybe that could happen to somebody else, too. You know, who am I to pick up the first stone? We're, uh, we're all just struggling along here trying to figure things out. And usually the more certain I am, the more wrong I prove to be later because things are usually more complex than that. And what if you're the person who's falsely accused? Well, that's a real growing experience. <laughs> but we've all experienced that. Um, at some point in our life, somebody important or several people important made a judgment about us that wasn't fair. I didn't do it. Why won't you listen to me? And so, yeah, it doesn't feel good. But I think it happens to everyone. If we can learn how to use our comfortable experiences to um, be less identified with our image, less concerned with what people think, and also recognize that we make the same mistakes. So it's hard to be tolerant of someone who's misjudging me. But if I'm honest, I've misjudged people, and I didn't do so with bad intentions. I just got it wrong. Sometimes they'll come around and apologize. Sometimes they don't. That's life. Uh, somebody said to me recently that uh, 
they realized that resentment was a cup of poison that they drink every day thinking it's going to make them better. So in the final analysis, I guess, reality is fairly subjective, and we're all walking around with our own different versions of reality, and we're all trying to understand where we've come from, where we're going, where we are right now, and these intersecting realities, this intersecting sort of groundlessness um, that could possibly lead to groundedness, perhaps it can just help us to be a little bit more compassionate and less judgmental towards everyone else if we know that there is this subjectivity that, that occurs. Wouldn't that make a better world? It would make a better world, yes. Dr. Aronson, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. How can people find out about Mental Health Associates of Maine or the work that you're doing? Um, they can look at the website, Mental Health Associates of Maine, uh, here in Portland. Just Google it. And um, their phone number is 773-2828, and I believe an operator is standing by. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Aronson, who is a psychotherapist with Mental Health Associates of Maine. Thank you for helping us uh, take a different view of the world and ourselves for this time period that you and I have been talking, and hopefully people will go out into the world and continue to try to take a different view. Thank you. It's an interesting experience. Nice talking to you. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 96, Viewpoint. Our guests have included Stephen Schwartz and Dr. Stephen Aronson. For more information on our guests, visit doctorlisa.org. Also, realize that the interviews we're providing you with over the course of an hour are just bits and pieces of what we've picked up as we've talked to our guests. For full interviews, please go to our website, doctorlisa.org. You'll be glad you did. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our Viewpoint show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. <laughs>